Right then. So, as you can tell from what is on the screen behind me tonight, I'm going to be talking about identity, um, particularly living our life in the context of our heavenly identity. So, if you want to go to the next slide for me. Who am I? Human history is littered with people searching for the answer to this short but massive question. It's the question behind the work of many a chin-scratching philosopher. <laughs> Students off to find themselves on their gap year. And, uh, and dare I say, like me, even you wrestle with the desperate longing to know who you are, who you really are, and what that means. So, what is identity, and how do we define ourselves? As a society, as a society we tend to draw our identity from what we do, what we like, and what we aspire to be. One of the first questions you ask someone when you first meet them is, oh, hi, what do you do? We have this deep desire to put ourselves into pigeonholes. Black, white, rich, poor, straight, gay, whatever it is, is an attempt to define ourselves and by doing so assign value to ourselves in this, this grand scheme of life. In 1831, I know it sounds like a gear change, but here we go. Stick with me. In 1831, a French sociologist called Alexis de Tocqueville traveled to the United States to, the, to study the US prison system. Whilst he was there, he ended up making some incredibly accurate observations about the society as a whole. He spoke of a strange melancholy that haunts the inhabitants in the midst of abundance. I'm going to read this bit because he speaks a bit funny. And he spoke how they believed that prosperity could quench their yearning for happiness but such hopes were illusory because the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. This strange melancholy manifests itself in many ways, but always leads to the same despair of not finding what is sought. These observations still hold true today. A fairly clear example of this came shortly after the economy crash in 2008, when there was a rash of suicides. These were mainly previously extremely rich people who very suddenly found themselves bankrupt and because their entire existence was based around the idea that they were rich and powerful. That was their, they made that their ultimate. So there was the despair at losing it all that meant they felt like they had no reason to exist. We fall into the trap of building our identity around the things of this world be it our career, love, sex, power, achievement, drugs, alcohol, even church, even the desire to be, you know, a face at church, to be on the holy front row. Well done. <laughs> even these things, no matter how good or bad they may seem, when we elevate these things to the level where they become our ultimate, the basis of our identity, where the thought of not having them would make life not worth living. We are doomed to disappointment, frustration, and despair. In doing that, we've dethroned God and made a false idol of our desires, our aspirations, and our institutions. So, if you are looking to establish an identity, then there's only really one place to look. Only one thing that can satisfy only one person who can bring eternal significance and fulfillment that we crave 
and that is God. So, in order to know who we are, we must first understand who God is. And for that, there's only one place to turn. The Bible. God's Word. So, if you've got one, turn it to Genesis 1-1 for me. If you could click the next slide, that'd be great. So, who is God? So, if we look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the Bible wastes no time in addressing who God is. In the, very f- in the first four words of the Bible, if you want to f- click for me now, please. In the first four words of the Bible, it says, in the beginning, God. Now, it doesn't necessarily seem that significant at first, but when you actually think about what that means, this establishes that God existed before everything. He was there before the beginning of all creation, and therefore an eternal being. So you see, if he existed before time, space, and matter, he's completely unbound by time, space, and matter. That's four words of the Bible. The next six words go on to say, he created the heavens and earth. So everything, everything that ever was, is, or will be, God created all that. So the handshake of the Bible is, hey, I'm God, Uh, I'm completely limitless, unbound by time and matter, everything that is, was, and ever will be, yep, that was me. You won't want to bump into that guy at dinner party, it'd be kind of hard to follow, but that's God, that's that's how the, the Bible shakes around and says, welcome to my book. And if that isn't enough of a reason to worship him, let's see what else the Bible's got to say about the character of God. So in this section, I'm basically just going to be reading out lots of chunks of the Bible, because they say, the Bible says it a lot better than I do. I make no apology for that. So if you could click over to the next slide for me, and again, please. Here we go. God is love. 1 John 4, verse 8. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. God is holy. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. God is righteous. Psalm 1 verse 7. For the Lord is righteous, he loves justice, the upright will see his face. God is our saviour. 1 Timothy 2, 3 to 4. This is good and pleases God our saviour who wants all people to be saved and come to know a knowledge to, sorry and come to a knowledge of the truth God is gracious Ephesians 2:8 for it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves it is a gift of God God is forgiving Psalm 103 2 to 4 praise the Lord O my soul and forget not all his benefits who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. God is our provider. Philippians 4.19 And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. God is just. Deuteronomy 10.17-18 For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords the great God, mighty and awesome, 
who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. God is our refuge. Psalm 91, 1-2. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. That is not an exhaustive list. There are so many things that the Bible says about God, but we would literally be here all night. But this is our God. All those things. This is our God. How mind-blowingly awesome is that? You can move to the next slide for me, please, mate. So, believe it or not, how things are now was not how God intended it initially. But through his grace, he works with us anyway. Thank goodness. So how was it supposed to be? See, when God made Adam and Eve, he made them with perfect bodies, with virtually no restrictions. They were able to walk with God. They had a perfect and intimate relationship with God. There was no pain in childbirth, no suffering, no sadness. The ground was rich, fertile, and easy to work. How do we know this? Because we know what the, the, uh, the fallout from sin was. There was no stress, no anxiety. Because what is there to worry about when you are literally in the presence of the living God? Adam and Eve lived in a state of perpetual worship and total fulfillment. They were so consumed with God that nothing else mattered. And that was their identity. That was God's plan for mankind. But, as we know, at some point we lost that identity. As we look in Genesis 3, we see the story of the fall. What we see is Satan coming into the garden and he questions God's identity. So in order to rob us of ours, Satan questions God's first. He says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? He said, you will not certainly die, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan sneakily attacks us by attacking God. He calls into question God's identity by suggesting that he's lying to them in an attempt to withhold godlike enlightenment from Adam and Eve. And in their foolishness, Adam and Eve allow themselves to question God's identity. And in doing so, they lose theirs. Adam and Eve took the fruit, their eyes were open to sin, and they realized that for the first time, they were naked. So when God shows up and asks them, who told you you were naked? That wasn't, he wasn't asking because someone had ruined his cosmic peep show. He was enjoying watching the naked people run around and someone's ruined it by telling them they were naked. That's not what that is. You see, before the fall, Adam and Eve weren't naked. Let me explain that. Primarily, God made us spiritual beings. So he made Adam and Eve as spiritual beings and he clothed them with flesh. 
They were dressed in flesh because we were primarily spiritual beings. When Adam and Eve decided to put the flesh as the primary, we lost the indwelling of God. So at that point, they were, just, they were naked in a way they'd never been before, in a way that they needed covering. The loss of the indwelling is why, when we become Christians, we have to ask God to come and live in us again. It's worth noting that rather than run to God begging for forgiveness when they realize what they've done, they try to hide it. They try to deal with it themselves, and they made some clothes out of fig leaves. But you see, fig leaves weren't up to the task. They were fragile, and they were doomed to wither and perish, and once again, unveil their nakedness. See, I think this is a picture of what we try to do with our identities. As Christians, we are spiritual beings designed to live forever in heaven along, long after our earthly bodies die. So, if we are destined for eternity, yet build our identity around anything other than God, the eternal God, then we are doomed to end up cold and exposed, covered with rotting fig leaves, wondering what on earth just happened. But our God is gracious. And rather than just scrapping the whole human project he'd started, there and then, he acted. There were, of course, repercussions you can read about in Genesis 3. You know, labor got a lot less comfortable. The ground got a lot harder to work. I'm not going to go through it all. It's there. Read it. But because of his love for Adam and Eve and us, God killed the first animal to provide them with suitable covering for their nakedness. We go to the next slide, please. So this is a picture of what your average biblical uh, altar would look like, just so you know. Uh, as a result of, of doubting God's identity in the Garden of Eden, we lost our own identity and broke our relationship with God. We see in the Old Testament that man, from that point on, could only commune with God through animal sacrifice. Sacrifice being a symbol of submission to God's authority, literally putting flesh to death. And it's also a mirror of God slaying the first animal in Eden to make clothes to cover Adam and Eve, which is a symbol of God's grace covering our sin. In Hebrews 9.22, it says, In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so it went on. The cycle of sin and sacrifice. Sin, sacrifice, sin, sacrifice. Until Jesus. Now, Jesus was a man who knew who he was. Jesus was so secure in his identity, so completely submitted to his Father God, that in many circumstances, he behaved in a way that shocked, offended, bewildered, amazed the people around him. I've got a few examples I'd like to share. First, when Jesus meets the Sumerian woman at the well, and he asks her for a drink, that totally shattered what was considered socially acceptable at the time. 
It would have been out of place for a Jewish man to speak to a strange woman in public at all. It would have been even like doubly outcast. This woman was doubly outcast because not only was she a lone woman, she was a Samaritan, which in Jewish culture was a big no-no. He then drank from the cup that she'd given him, which would have been considered wholly unclean by Jewish standards. And yet Jesus was so secure in his identity that he didn't care what people thought or what social boundaries he had to break. He came to do as the Father instructed, to love, to liberate, to redeem all of mankind, and that was all he cared about. In Mark 437 to 41, we read about when Jesus calmed the storm. I'm just going to read that quickly for you. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion, and the disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the wave, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to the disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified to ask each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. You see, Jesus was so at peace whilst on this boat that was being, while this boat was being tossed around about how everyone, Jesus was so at peace while this boat was being tossed around and everyone else was fearing for their lives. He was quite happily catching 40 winks at the back with his head on a pillow. I'm not quite sure where he got the pillow from but it's there. You see, he knew who he was. He knew who his father was. And he knew that that meant no matter what was going on around him, he could be at peace because he knew he was in God's hands. Now, when the disciples woke him up, afraid for their very lives, Jesus did calm the storm. Now, he could have skipped that and gone straight to the rebuke about, have you no faith? But as an act of grace, he did calm the storm for their sake because he knew that he could, he could display God's glory in that. It was a beautiful act of grace. Where are we now? Last example. John 13, I'll read a little section to you again. It was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Simon Iscariot to betray Jesus. And here's where it gets really interesting. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel wrapped around his waist. So I'm just going to read that bit here. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power 
and yet he gets up and he washes dirt off people's feet. This is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the great high priest of heaven. He, shouldn't have, he should have been sat on a throne made of gold being fed grapes by angels. You know, whilst all of creation groveled at his feet. But he knew who he was, he humbled himself, he got up, he cleaned the dirt off his followers' feet so that they could have an example of what it means to be both a child of God and a humble servant. Imagine the most important person you can think of in this whole world. Washing your feet. And then like, times it by a bajillion. So if you could turn the next slide for me. So how do we find value in our identity? I've got a couple of examples here for you. So at 20 pound note, if I had one here, what would that be worth? I'm actually looking for an answer. Correct. If it was screwed up into a ball, thrown behind the back of the couch, what would it be worth? If I ripped it in half, sellotaped it back together, what would it be worth? Why? Why is it worth 20 pounds? Because it carries the mark of the queen, who is the highest authority in this land. Same is true for us. What's that painting? That painting is one of the most viewed and crazily expensive paintings in the world. But when you break it down, it's probably a few quid's worth of oil and paint on a piece of wood. That's what it is. That's, that's what it cost, but what's it worth? Millions. Why? Because right at the bottom, the little signature. So it is the artist that gives the value to that. It's that it is endorsed by its creator. The same is true for us. Next slide, please. This is your value. See, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So that cycle of sin and sacrifice stopped there. You see, the death of Jesus was the final and the perfect sacrifice. The shedding of blood that provided a covering of grace for all who seek redemption from nakedness of sin for all time. You may not believe it, you may not feel it, I know I certainly don't sometimes, but to God, you are the most precious person. You are worth the death of his only son, Jesus Christ. That is the value of your identity in God. But how can God love someone as broken as me, or as broken as you? I'm going to pronounce this wrong, but bear with me. 
Kintsungi, and that's what I'm going with. Say it, say it confident, everyone. It's Kintsungi. <laughs> is a Japanese method for repairing broken ceramics using a special lacquer mixed with gold, silver, or platinum. The idea is that rather than dispose of a broken item and replace it, they embrace its brokenness and use it as a feature. See, the process usually results in something much more beautiful than the original and worth considerably more. This is a great metaphor for how God sees us. We were born, but we are sinful by nature. And before you know it, we were nothing but a collection of broken fragments that aren't fit for anything. But you see, God doesn't see us that way. Thank goodness. Instead, if we come to him, regardless of our condition, he will take the shards of our broken hearts, pour his wonderful grace into the cracks, and make us a new creation. More beautiful, more valuable than we could ever dream of being without him. So, who does God say we are now? When, when we fix our identity on Christ, who are we? Again, I make no apologies. I'm going to read you loads of Bible verses here. So, 1 John, 1, sorry, 1 John 3, verses 1 to 2. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that, and that is what we are. See, the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known, but we will be known, but we will know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us for sonship through Christ Jesus in accordance with his pleasure and will. 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who call you out of darkness into his wonderful light. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price, therefore honour God with your bodies. John 1.12 Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And finally, 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. So, to summarise, when you fix your heart on Christ and submit your identity to God. You are adopted into sonship, a child of God. You will be like Christ. <laughs> you, are, you will be in his wonderful light. You will be a royal priest, part of a holy nation, part of a chosen people. You will be a temple, a new creation. You are no longer your own. You have significance beyond yourself. So what does that mean? What does that mean for us? What will happen when we live our lives in the context of God? 
Well, I've got four points. Probably more stuff's going to happen. But we, we, we're not here forever. So, one, we no longer chase after our own desires, but seek to bring God glory in everything we do. In 1 John 2, 15 to 17, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the fathers is not, for, not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its own desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Next, we will no longer fear the future. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in a person's heart, but the Lord's purpose it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. So it doesn't matter what plans we make, whether they succeed or fail, it says here, black and white, the Lord's purpose is the one that will prevail. You know that, you feel that. Nothing can touch you. Thirdly, we have no need to judge or compare ourselves to others when we seek to please Christ alone. In Luke 6.37, it says, Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Finally, number four, we should not be surprised when suffering comes, but we can be confident it will produce things of eternal value. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Yes, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. 1 Peter 4.16 says, Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. Becoming a Christian and doing it for real is not easy. It's so counterculture. It's so counterculture and becoming more so. It's going to be hard. But, it's, again, it says here in black and white, don't be ashamed, don't be surprised, but you will be glorified with God because of it. So moving on to my last slide. We're back at the altar. Now, I want to finish with a challenge. Can you live a normal life knowing what we've talked about tonight? Are we duty-bound to spread the good news? Are we ambassadors for God? And what does that look like in your life? Honestly, we represent God whether we like it or not, in the same way that the Mona Lisa represents Da Vinci. But unlike a painting, we can't choose, sorry, we can choose to misrepresent our creator. Once a painting's painted, it's there. We can, we can choose to represent God well, or we can choose to misrepresent him. So if your identity is based in God, then live it that way. Live that way. Think about what you like what you post on Facebook, what you give your time to, what you read, 
what you think about, what you talk about, how you react to fear, anger, stress. See, most non-Christians will never read the Bible. They will read you, though. And they won't forget a word. So live like you carry the mark of the king. Because you do. Sometimes that means doing things that we don't want to do. Just as a matter of obedience. Even Jesus had times where he lived out his identity despite his desire to do otherwise. He did not want to go to the cross. He was prepared to, and he loved us, and he did. But he didn't want to. That's what Gethsemane was all about. If there is any way, God, that we can do this without that, that's what I want to do. That's what he was praying. And yet, in obedience, he lived out his identity. Is there anything in your life that you desire more than God? Is there anything in this world that you couldn't bear the thought of living without? If the answer to either of those questions is yes, no matter how good by earthly standards they may be, then you need to place them on the altar. Surrender them before God, repent, and restore God to his rightful place. During worship a couple of weeks ago, Mark was singing, just singing in the spirit. And there was a line he sang, make my heart your home, make my heart your throne. Let's make that our daily prayer. Thank you.